Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today's title is Post-Pandemic PTSD. As many of you will know, it appears we're finally through the pandemic. And while there's some that continue to stoke fear, most mandates are over. Masks are gone for 98% of people, and COVID is not really a headline in the news every day. We know that there's other stressors and many people are still traumatized by the events of the past three years, but we want to take today to look and talk about some pastoral counsel for those things. So what are you envisioning for today, Aaron? So Chris, I wanted to do a a podcast. Uh, Sometimes we talk about worldview issues or a theological matter. I wanted this to be more of an encouraging podcast to offer some pastoral counsel to people. Reason for this is that I have observed a certain weariness, bluesiness, pessimism among, among many people that have been frontline warriors in this fight over the past three years. And I, I suspect that some people are down in the dumps or perhaps just a little bummed out. And we want to offer them a word of hope. Many years ago, I had the opportunity to do some training with the Toronto Police Department and uh, eventually was certified as a a debriefer for uh, police and emergency services workers. Basically, it was a course in uh, how to handle people and deal with people and interact with people that were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder in the the realm of emergency services. So at the time, I was serving as a fire chaplain, and they wanted me to get some training in this area. And it was interesting just to hear the impact what they would call the psychological impact that exposure to death, to trauma, to critical incidents would have upon people. But the solution that was offered, I don't want to oversimplify it, but the number one piece of advice that our trainer gave to us is you got to get people talking about it as soon as possible. Hmm. If you can get an emergency services worker that's gone through a traumatic event, found a body in a fire, picked up a dead child in a car wreck, something catastrophic like that. If you can get them talking about it, kind of move out of their tough guy culture and talk about it, it really helps to reduce this thing that they call post-traumatic stress disorder. So based on that principle, I don't want to suggest, this is not a formal clinical diagnosis here. I don't want to suggest that literally people are wandering around with PTSD as a result of lockdowns. There may be some that, that are. But I want to take that principle. Mm-hmm. I, I sense that there's a certain PTSD, if you will, uh, a soft PTSD that many people have experienced and are wrestling with over the last few years. And I want to talk about it. And what maybe makes this podcast different from the training I received in Toronto is that we want to talk about it from a Christian perspective. I want to share some thoughts from God's word and some encouragement with our listeners that will help them just to process the trauma that they have experienced over the past several years. Mm -hmm. So before we get to that counsel, I think it would be useful to us to 
recycle or not recycle, just address the elephant in the room, really. Like what are those traumatic events that cause all the stress, anxiety, and worry? Mm. Well, in, in life, there's different categories of stress. A person can have legal stresses because they're in trouble with the law. A person can have economic stresses because of recession, job loss, maybe the death of a primary income earner, loss of investments, crash of the house market. A person can also have ecclesiastical issues. They can have conflict with their church, which can cause stressors in their lives. Uh, they can have relational stress where maybe they're going through a divorce or a, a close friend dies or moves away or their child abandons them or whatever it might be. So there's broad categories of stressors that people experience in life. And, you know, the reality is we're not superhuman. Mm -hmm. Life can throw a lot of curveballs at us. And as a result, you, you could be anxious. You can be riddled with worry. You can be struck with fear. There can be a certain depression that sets in as a result of thinking a lot about the challenges of living in a broken world, there's all sorts of emotional, mental responses that we as human beings have to the challenges of life. And we as Christians should, should talk about those things. The Bible talks about fear and worry and anxiety. And Jeremiah certainly seemed to have his own form of, uh, of depression. Mm -hmm. And I know we've, we've made that word a clinical term, but in the pre-modern era, you know, wasn't necessarily always considered a clinical thing, but people, you know, you have, you have down times in life and uh, there's many reasons for this. So if we think about, I don't want to, I don't want to bum people out more than they might already be, <laughs> At this point, yeah. but let's just identify the pain. Okay. I think it's important. Sometimes before we, we find healing, we have to be diagnosed and we have to identify what are the pains the challenges, the traumatizing events that I've experienced in my life. So there may be some that are feeling off. Something doesn't seem right in the world or in their own lives, but they haven't put their finger on it. They don't really identify like, why is it that I feel different now than I did three years ago? Mm -hmm. And I want to just throw them out there on the table for us to identify. They're not necessarily going to be pleasant or polite, but they're out there. And these are in no particular order. But one that comes to mind is friendships. Many people have lost friendships through this crisis, this cultural crisis over the past three years now almost. And one of the ways that people have lost friendships is by friends moving away. Like we've had people move. I think we've all, I would imagine almost everybody listening to this show knows of others who have said, you know, I don't want to live in this province or this state or this country. I'm I'm getting out of Dodge or I lost my job. I got to move or I need to be closer to family or whatever the situation might be. We've had people move and we've had people come and that can be a challenge. Now we, we can at the same time commend uh, a dear friend that chooses to move for the betterment of their family and also mourn it. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to completely rejoice in it. Just like those that have moved to other places may feel quite comfortable and content with the decisions they've made, but they mourn those they've left behind. Right. So this isn't a judgment issue, but the reality is it's hard to lose good friends. And we just need to acknowledge that. I know in our own church, four of our elders moved out of the country. Uh, 
three of my very close pastoral colleagues moved to three different countries. Uh, four of our staff members, a couple of whom were also elders, so they're in the same category as I previously mentioned, but four of our staff members moved to another country. And it wasn't easy for them to make that decision, and we don't blame them for it. We, we honor them, we respect them, we support them, but I miss them. Mm-hmm. And maybe they even miss us a little bit too. Yeah. So I was talking to another pastor this week, and he mentioned how hard it has been for him to see a couple of his close pastoral colleagues move away. Mm-hmm. So I think I think we can acknowledge that. Like we we have relationships that we value to different degrees, and when people that are really close to you move away, it can it can affect us emotionally, mm-hmm. and it's okay for us to acknowledge that. And then in the relational category as well, there's there's collegial challenges. So if you are in a particular industry or vocation and you took a stance against lockdownism or the government, chances are you had some people in the same vocational category as you that made a very different decision, and chances are it caused and is causing you some collegial conflict. I know for myself, I'm a pastor, and there are several men that I would have had a pretty good relationship with before the pandemic and we don't have that kind of relationship anymore and that can be a painful thing Mm -hmm. to acknowledge that some of my friends I think failed in all honesty and failed to stand for the supremacy of Christ over the ministry and worship of the church and you know I'm sure they have issues with my response so they have their own reasons for it as well but that causes pain and that causes anxiety. And even among those that are in agreement. So there's even been relational tension and discord among those that are sort of on our team because you have different perspectives on how you should respond to particular issues. So that causes stress. Many people have also lost their job. So now we're moving into the economic category. Mm-hmm. There's people in our church and outside of our church that I know of, who were tenured professionals in jobs that required a lot of education and a lot of time and a lot of effort to make it to where they were at, who were tossed out on their ear. Mm -hmm. Some of them have received their jobs back and some of them still have not. And they're working for a lot less money. So that causes a certain stress. I'm sure there's a sense in which you know, your colleagues maybe let you down. You got thrown under the bus. You got fed to the wolves. Or there's other people that I'm hearing this more and more and more that chose to comply that are now angry. Hmm. They have more information. They're angry. They feel now they were forced to comply. You know, when you're asked to make a decision within a week about whatever it might be, a vaccine, some sort of compliance to a mandate, and maybe you know, in in due deference to those that comply that now regret it, they may just not have had the time to, they made a knee-jerk reaction or they made it based upon a limited amount of information and now they regret it. And that causes them angst mm-hmm. in their places of employment. Another stressor would be those that spent a lot of time and money and effort at political campaigns trying to bring about change attending protests, driving, 
long distances to protests, spending a lot of their time and resources at various protests that didn't receive any acknowledgement or recognition for their efforts. Mm. Some of them have been vilified. You know, it's a fascinating thing. One of the things I've learned in, in the last few years is that while we love to talk as a democracy about peaceful protest, we don't actually value it. When I say we, I mean the state. The state officials, in my estimation, like peaceful protests because they can just ignore it. They don't care about it. It's like, whatever. Yeah, you can protest. I don't care. I don't really know of a whole lot of fruit between the citizens and the politicians that have been born from peaceful protests. They, they're aware that they're happening, but what we've seen is peaceful protesters vilified, mm -hmm. fine, charged, their bank accounts frozen. These are not violent people. Mm -hmm. These are not people that were trying to storm parliament buildings, but they've been vilified. I mean, my word, we even had our prime minister enact the emergency act in Canada for a bunch of people with bouncy castles and barbecues out front of the parliament buildings. I mean, talk about an over-the-top response, and he continues to vilify people. So there can be a, a certain pain, and it's like you feel just hopeless and helpless. Like, I did everything possible. I mean, I, some people went to Ottawa for weeks. They drain their bank accounts to pay for their last tank of gas, and they don't mm -hmm. feel they've necessarily received any, um, they haven't even had a, here's the thing, they haven't even had a politician dialogue with them about it. Mm -hmm. Like there hasn't even been a conversation that's taken place from it. And then ecclesiastically, there's been uh, people that have, have um, been disciplined out of their church. I know there was a church in uh, in London that was threatening church discipline if people didn't abide by mask mandates in the church and people feel betrayed by that. People that have had to leave their churches. I've talked to many folks, Chris, who've, who live in more rural areas that aren't as populated that formed house churches and it's kind of what they had to do at the time because they didn't want to drive two and a half, three hours to a, a church that was open because there was so few of them at the time. And a lot of those house churches were started off with uh, with good people, but maybe lack pastoral leadership or strategy or direction, and they feel a little lost right now in terms of what what's the next step. Mm -hmm. uh, people, some people feel they were betrayed by their by their clergy, by their pastors and elders who who didn't take a stand. So you have all of that, and then there's uh, family disputes. Many people have um, have. I've talked to a couple of grandparents who have been denied access to their grandchildren because the parents, their children, said, if you're not vaccinated, you're not coming over. Or um, people who who have had to sort of separate because their views are so antithetical to the others that they just can't tolerate having a conversation about it. I heard of some people this Christmas who, for the first time in three years, were uh, reunified with some of their family members they've been at odds with for three years. That can be a painful thing because most people, by definition, you know, love their families, mm -hmm. and it's it's extra painful when a family member is on a different page than you. Than if uh, you know it's the, the the guy that works in the cubicle next to you. So that that's been an issue. And how about legal challenges? You know, if you if you had your bank account frozen or you're sitting on a stack of court summonses or tickets, or you potentially are still facing jail time, tell me there's not some stressors involved in that. And 
the thing of it is, is that most people that got ticketed and charged and jailed over the past three years by the state are people that have never previously even broken any laws. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's not like you're used to it. It's not like you're a petty, petty criminal that's, you know, you've stolen cars and you've been caught dealing drugs and this is just a normal part of your dysfunctional life. What was shocking is we have people, the most of the people that have been penalized are those that pay taxes, appreciate, have historically appreciated the laws, probably defended the police, maybe our police are in law enforcement or are in a legal profession and really feel dejected at how quickly the legal apparatus, which is supposed to protect charter rights and protect people, can be turned against people. Mm-hmm. And you feel after a while like you don't have any legal recourse. The law enforcement aren't standing up for you as a whole. Certain individuals are. The politicians, there's very, very few of them and almost none of them in elected office right now that truly are standing up. Um, the courts, you know, we 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 would hope that justice is blind, mm-hmm. but when you have the federal judges come out declaring to the world their vaccination status, like, what are you guys doing? Um, why are you doing that? You're going to be trying cases down the road that relate to potentially vaccination injuries or people that conscientiously objected to it. So what are you doing? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't give you a great deal of confidence yeah. in, the, uh, in the legal apparatus. And a couple more that come to mind, media overload. Most journalists know that the best traction they can get is through doom and gloom stories. Mm -hmm. And when you're inundated with doom and gloom stories, and a lot of them are true. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's where it's different, right? (laughs) A lot of them are true. It can be hard to take. It's like, oh my word, the world is really crashing and burning, and that can drag people down. Fear of global challenges. I said this a few years ago. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to predict this stuff. That the statism, the the rise of authoritarianism in Western governments, once they have it, they don't relinquish power. That's the way the world works. And they apply the same logic now. What are we hearing about every day? The climate agenda, the climate change, the climate crisis. You listen to some of the panels. You hear see little snippets here and there on Twitter, or Facebook, coming out of the World Economic Forum's Davos conference. And it's like the sky is falling. The sky is falling. That's the word in that you know global crisis. We have to act quickly. It's like come on, people, give your head a shake. Al Gore, the former vice president of the United States, was on a panel. He's a false prophet, by the way. Mm-hmm. Did he not prophesy that you know in 2013 we're basically done? Here we are, years later, when he had his um, I think it was uh, was an inconvenient truth. His documentary back. 15 years ago or so, he had all these predictions about, you know, what was going to happen with global warming. Well, he was wrong. Uh, just like Leonard Nimoy was wrong in the late 70s, early 80s, and they were predicting the world by now would be in a um, global ice age, right? But people keep listening to these folks, and it's all doom and gloom. Now, the w- WEF, the World Economic Forum, is probably one of the most dangerous organizations in the face of the planet today. And people have the right to be concerned about Klaus Schwab's ideologies and the connections he has to many governments around the world, which he claims not to be involved in the politics of, but he clearly is. But we hear those stories, 
food shortages are a reality. They're not in an apocalyptic sense, but even in 2023, 20, uh, many people are predicting that there's going to be continued food shortages. And, and it makes sense. You know, you, you have revolving lockdowns that take place over a two-year period. You're, you're penalizing farmers by banning fertilizers or making it completely unaffordable to even fertilize your crops. And it's like you got to go from using it to not using it in one year or something like that. Mm-hmm. Fuel costs are through the roof. You can blame it on Ukraine or whatever, but the world, the the, the cogs are not well oiled right now, well greased. Like there's, there's challenges with food production and delivery and the cost of paying for vehicles that um, transport goods and the fuel required to fuel those vehicles and the rising prices of fertilizers and all these bureaucratic, all this bureaucratic red tape. So there is reason for that. Inflation, our buying power has dropped. I know a lot of young people in our church are stressed out about the fact it's very difficult to buy a house. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, you know, back 25 years ago or so, you know, I could buy a house for under $100,000 in this city. And it's very difficult to find a comparable house for less than four or $500,000 in this city. So there's been a four or five fold increase in the value of homes. There hasn't been a four or five fold increase in the the income, uh, the income sure. that no. people have. And the interest rates are about the same. We bought our first house, our first mortgage was at 6.75%. And I was told mm. it'll never be lower in your whole life. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, we know that, you know, a couple of years ago, they were below 2%. But not only is the, the price tag just a lot more, but the, the down payment, right? You got to save up a down payment. There's couples that were saving up a down payment once they got to the price they to the, to the the amount they needed, the houses had increased so far beyond them that they, they had to start over again. Unfortunately, there seems to be a a leveling out, um, a slowing down of the market. People aren't putting in these blind offers anymore with with no um, no uh, conditions attached. So there, there there's some room to be reason to be optimistic. But the point is, is that that's caused people stress, mm-hmm. and I think there's a direct link between the economic crises of our day, inflation, rising house prices, and statism, and the way they've managed our funds, the way they've printed money, the way they've handed out uh, cash to dead people, to people that don't even exist in our country through the CERB programs and that, billions of dollars squandered. Billions of dollars being squandered on the, the fake climate crisis, these sorts of things. So that causes, um, you know, people stress. And then I've also heard a few people say that, um, you know, they're they're traumatized by this podcast, Sp- specifically <laughs> your aggressive behavior, Chris. My, my aggressive. Yeah, so. I was going to say the last five minutes of you ranting about all the troubles of the world was, <laughs> if that wasn't <laughs> enough to, if you weren't having stress before, now you do. One of the things I think that I have realized is, especially with a lot of younger people, this is their first major cultural battle. Sure. And so- it's kind of waking up to the futility of it in a sense of like just how depraved the world is. Right. Yeah. And that can be a 
kind of your nice paradise is gone, mm-hmm. right? Oh, well, misery deserves company. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I would say this, um, and we're going to get into some solutions or some perspective issues in a moment. But part of the trauma of the moment is because we've, relatively speaking, had it so good for so long. Mm-hmm. If you study human history, I mean, there's been people that have had it way worse than we've had it. You hear stories of people living through even World War II, which really yep. wasn't that long ago, or World War One, or various communist crises countries, or right? communism, various challenges, economic challenges in in past generations, living under the feudal system in Europe where you'd never own land. Yep. Saving up for a down payment, are you kidding me? If you weren't born a lord or a lady, you'd never own land, period, not for generations. And you would starve to death if the potato crop failed or whatever it might be. So there's been people, we're just not, we've never experienced that. We've maybe seen some movies about it, but we've never experienced that. So this is this is one of the first major cultural crises for most people, maybe not people from foreign countries that have moved to Western countries, but people who are Westernized and perhaps have been a Western country for generations. It's very difficult for them to wrap their minds around how, a um, a nation that has historically been so good has gone so sour. So, for example, I'm a historical Canadian. You know, my family's been here on through one of the lines for almost 400 years. And, uh, you know, if I would travel the world, and I've done a little bit of traveling, I would always be proud to be a Canadian. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't want to be an American. I don't want to be a Brit. I don't want to be a German. I, like, I, I'm a Canadian, man. No do offense not, to our American yeah, listeners. Yeah, do you or. not know how good, how good we've had it? <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, now it's kind of embarrassing, and I think t- for the, you know, for the sake of our American listeners, I know of many Americans who feel the same way about their country. Mm-hmm. Like historically, like this is the land of the free, the home of the brave. Like we we love being American, and now it's like what, what an embarrassment we've come. And it's not that we don't see certain blessings that certain residual blessings in our countries as a result of the efforts of past generations of Christianized people. But there's so much destruction happening so rapidly. It's a culture of death. It's a culture of theft by taxation. It's a culture of status control over the Christian church. It's a culture where there's the the so, so, so-called tolerance crowd is are the least tolerant people probably ever. I mean, those that champion all these various woke agendas are so unbelievably judgmental mm-hmm. and so intolerant of any dissent. They will resort to the criminal code. They will resort to law enforcement. They will resort to public shaming and cancellation. I mean, it's it's no holds barred for them. They'll attack you left, right, and center in the name of tolerance and inclusion. Yes. <laughs> and we yeah. see it. It's so obvious, but it's hard to take. Yeah. So with that as a backdrop, kind of reviewing those things, let's maybe shift gears into a positive note. What's the what's the hope offered? How do we begin to address these things? Well, there's four or five things that I want to sort of unpack, just help people to put perspective on this. So we've spent the majority of our time together today talking about the downside, but there is a certain beauty to what is going on in the world today that is part of that the God's work of redemption. So God is always at work. You know, the Bible tells us that he he's um working at all things for the good, mm-hmm. 
for those that are the called according to his purpose. And one of the things that comes to mind, and this is difficult for us to, we can hear it, but it's difficult for us to experientially embrace because we're not used to it in the West. Some cultures who are more accustomed to persecution and suffering get this, but it's the point that suffering actually sanctifies us. Mm -hmm. Suffering actually sanctifies us. And I want each of us to make a commitment to really grabbing hold of that truth. Suffering sanctifies us. Now, there, there's some people out there that have an improper view of suffering. So there's on one extreme, you have those that would say, you know, I love to suffer. I, I want to suffer. Like, bring it on. I, I want to go to jail. I want to uh, die in a hail of bullets uh, at the hands of a tyrant state. Now, historically, there are some Christians that, that believed in that as well. They practice self-flagellation to mortify the flesh, as they would say. You know, they'd whip themselves with, um, with ropes. Uh, they would deprive themselves of food. They would live in uncomfortable places and hot deserts in cages to try to mortify the flesh. And really what that is, it sound, they're, they're, they think they're, this is what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ. So they're, okay, Christ suffered. He was put to death. He was whipped, beaten, put on a cross thrown into a borrowed tomb. So we should do the same. That's what it means to share in the suffering of Christ. But really, it's a, it's a non-Christian form of self-atonement. It's a non-Christian form of self-atonement dressed in the garb of self-sacrifice. It's the kind of thing that Hindus, Hindu gurus do. It's the kind of thing that pagan cultures did historically. It's not a Christian concept. The body is our steward, one of our stewardships. And just like you don't have authority to kill yourself, you you don't have authority to damage your body. You just don't have that authority. It's your stewardship. So cutting parts off, whipping yourself, castrating yourself, these sorts of things that we've, we've heard stories of this in history of Christians doing this to mortify the flesh. It's like they, they have this notion that Jesus literally meant, you know, if your one hand causes you to steal, cut, cut it off or pluck your eye right. out. Yeah. That's that's the one extreme. The other extreme would be, hey, you know what? I expect health and wealth for myself. I expect life to be a bed of roses. Jesus promised me blessings in the here and now. Yeah. So the other extreme is I don't suffer. I'm not going to suffer. I expect to be wealthy, healthy. I expect to be popular. I expect to be free from suffering at all costs. And the problem there is that's the materialistic worldview creeping in. That's the self-centered. That's the, I'm going to use Jesus for my own benefit gospel. But in the scriptures, there, there is this theology of suffering. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, we're told that suffering will make us strong in our faith. It will make us firm in our faith. It will make us steadfast in our faith. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, we're told that it's an inevitable part of a godly life. If you're going to live a godly life in a broken world, you're, you're going to suffer. It's, it's inevitable. In um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, we're told to rejoice in our suffering. And it's not because there's something in Christ's suffering that's lacking. That's not what that verse means. It's not that there's something in Christ's suffering that we get a, he, you know, he atoned for 90% of it. We have to atone for 10% of it. It's not that. But through our suffering, we are further conformed to the suffering Christ, to the suffering servant, the Messiah. So if you, if you study the suffering passages of Scripture, we aren't instructed to pursue 
suffering, nor are we instructed to avoid it at all costs, including compromise. So there's the balancing factor. Mm -hmm. We're not told, hey, you know, go, go and get yourself in trouble with the law as much as possible because then you'll be a super Christian. We're not told, you know, do everything possible to try to draw out your enemies. You know, make sure you pursue suffering at all costs because that's what a real Christian is. Nor are we told to run and hide mm -hmm. and to comply and do everything we can to avoid suffering. But we are, and we're not told to like it, and we're not told to accept it in some fatalistic sense. But it is part and parcel of being a Christian and representing mm -hmm. Christ in a fallen world. And we don't need to like it to embrace it in the sense that we, we're seeing that God uses suffering to work out his good plans in our lives, to sanctify us. In fact, I doubt there would be any Christian listening to this show that wouldn't be able to say, you know, this happened in my life, this happened in my life, and this happened in my life, and they were very painful and trying times, but man, am I thankful through the eyes of faith that God allowed those things to happen to me because it really drew, drew me mm -hmm. close to him or drew me to him for the first time, mm -hmm. right? Why do you need a savior if everything's great? Why do you need the gift of the Holy Spirit if you're perfectly capable in and of yourself to meet all your own needs and to make all your own decisions? Uh, why do you need the people of God? Why, are, why do we pray and sing songs of thanksgiving for what God has done that we can't do? So in our weakness, he is strong. That's what Paul taught the Corinthian church. In our weakness, he is strong. And so there is through the eyes of faith, a redemptive value attached to suffering. Again, it doesn't mean we pursue it at all costs, and it doesn't mean that we avoid it at all costs, but it's an inevitable part of serving the Lord, and the Lord will sanctify us through it. So let the Lord sanctify you to teach you whatever he needs mm -hmm. to teach through your loss of friendships or loss of jobs or your family disputes, or your disappointment with your church, or your legal challenges, let the Lord sanctify you. And if you draw closer to him, and you're a better representative and ambassador for him in the process, then it's been worth it. Mm -hmm. And would you say with suffering, some people perceive it as an indication they're on the wrong track, whereas when the scriptures speak about it, it's to encourage Christians that are suffering, no, that's a guaranteed thing that's going to happen when you're on the right track. So it's don't get, don't get uh, discouraged thinking I must be doing something wrong because that's the way the world thinks, right? Mm -hmm. Where they you do something wrong, you get hurt for it. So well, do something different. In Romans thirteen, you know the evildoer justly is punished by the state when he does evil. So there, a person can be their own worst enemy. A person can put themselves in a position where they're unnecessarily suffering because their own stupidity or their own evil deeds. Yep. Uh, you know, I know people that have struggle in social relationships. And it's like, wh why is it that you, you've you been unable to maintain your marriage? You, you can't stay in the same church. You're constantly jumping from job to job. And you're just generally viewed as an all-around jerk. Well, because I'm suffering for Jesus. <laughs> no, because right. you don't love people mm -hmm. or you're ungracious or you're immature or you have no loyalty to relationships. The problem is you. Mm -hmm. So, Sometimes we can be our own worst enemies, and suffering may be self-induced. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people that are suffering at the hands of a tyrant state. Mm -hmm. But 
sometimes people suffer because of their own bad choices. For example, in our culture, there's a lot of victim language placed upon those that are addicted to substances. And there's a lot of victim language put on those that are homeless. Well, I'll just say what most people aren't willing to say because it's true. Most people in Canada are addicted to substances because of bad choices they made. There might be a few that got a bad prescription, didn't know what they're getting into, got addicted to something because of you know post-surgery, they were given the wrong stuff and now they're addicted to it. Most people are homeless by choice. I'm not trying to be cruel or mean, but most people are homeless by choice. They're not availing themselves of God's laws. The Bible says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. There's a lot of people that don't want to eat, and so they're suffering. They're homeless because they don't want to work. I remember years ago when I was working at a downtown church, we'd have homeless people come, and this was more common than not, sad story, but we'd have people come, and uh, they'd ask for food. Well, they usually would ask for money. But we didn't give out money, so we'd, we'd give them food. It wasn't uncommon for them. I remember one instance where as soon as the guy left the building, he just threw the box of food in the parking lot and ran off. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to not accept it in the church, but that wasn't what he was there for. He was just looking for, for money. He was an addict. We'd have people, uh, I remember a fellow that came for food, and then um, he left, and I happened to be walking through the church, and I saw him go outside, turn the corner, and put his box of food together with a few other boxes of food that he was with a friend. So they were basically going from church to church and collecting Mm -hmm. food. We had a situation where um, someone called for a Christmas turkey and we we would put them on a list. And I don't remember, we gave about 30 or 40 turkeys or whatever it was at Christmas. People would call in, not people that would go to church. They were just community people. And we put them on a list and um, so yeah, we'll, we'll deliver a turkey on such and such a date. And then, one of these ladies that called immediately called back. Hey, I'm just calling for a turkey. We're like, hey, you just called. So she had a list, obviously, she was working through and mistakenly dialed the same church's number twice. Hmm. My dad was in um, firefighting and they used to deliver food to people in the community. And I said, yeah, we'd go to, we says, remember one time we went to this house, we knock on the door and we hear the person just yell, come on in. So a couple of firefighters walk in with these boxes of food and people are playing cards at the table and drinking, smoking. Yeah, just, just put the food on the table over there and no, not thankful at all. Just like, hey, drop the food, get lost. Thanks for the delivery service. We're playing cards. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that there's not legitimately poor people. My family was poor growing up. Mm-hmm. Our, my parents divorced. My mom had six kids under the age of um, 13, I think it was, or, or 11. And we were legitimately poor. So there, there's legitimately poor people, but a lot of people out there, they're not victims. They need to be told, get a job, mm-hmm. get some help, repent of your sins. But that's not a popular message in a country like ours. So you're right. Some people suffer at the hands of others and some people suffer because of their own foolishness. And we do need to differentiate between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we've got suffering sanctifies us. It's one of the positive ways we look at what we've gone through or one of the ways we dress. What would be another one? Prayer. You know, in pain, we just tend to pray more. In the Lord's Prayer, we're not praying, hey, Lord, everything's great. Life is perfect. I'm healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Just want to give you a two thumbs up. We're praying for things like, hey, deliver us from evil. 
And why do we pray that? Because we can be victimized by evil, spiritual evil, social evils. You know, we have the enemy of self to deal with the flesh, but we also have the enemy of satanic forces, and we have the enemy of um, the social order, the broken social order that we're in. Prayer fundamentally is an expression of our dependence upon God. If you can, there's, we've preached endless sermons on prayer, and there's all sorts of sermon series you can create on prayer and lots of elements and aspects of prayer, right? The power of prayer, the person of prayer, the presence of prayer, and on and on and on. Lots of uh, teachings been done over the years on prayer, but if you sort of boil it all down, it is, a, it is an act of abject dependence upon God. You ask for something that you're not capable of, deliver me from evil, mm-hmm. provide my daily bread. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's, it's an act of, of contrition, of humility, of surrender. And again, I think it would be true for every Christian listening that we would all admit that we just tend to pray more when we're suffering. C.S. Lewis made an interesting comment. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience and shouts in our pain. So I love that build up there. Mm -hmm. And he goes on to say, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So when we are in pain, when we are in pain, we pray more. And God often permits and allows pain in our lives to wake us up. And we've been woken up. We've been woken up over the last three years to the abject brokenness of our countries. And we have a choice then. What's our response going to be? And so we've been you know, called out of our slumber. Even myself, like I don't consider myself a passive guy. I wasn't dragging my feet through life. I feel I've been fairly proactive, but this has made me more proactive. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's been a blessing. I also think that, um, that this has helped us to stop thinking so horizontally and to actually think vertically to see what God is doing. And I want to encourage everyone listening to think about that in your own life. You know, we, to, to look, to, if you just look around you horizontally, it's pretty bleak. It's pretty bleak. Have there been some wins along the way? Minor wins. Uh, is there some good news along the way? Yep. You know, the prime minister of New Zealand just resigned. That's good news. Okay. Um, there's some good news. Some of these tyrants are resigning, aren't being reelected, whatnot. There's been a few little wins in court, but for the most part, it's pretty bad out there still. But from a vertical perspective, God is working in amazing ways. We've seen that in our own church. If I look around and get a little bummed out at what's going on because of the latest news feed, I'm reminded of the 88 people that we baptized in our church as believers just last year, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I know there's folks listening to my show show that are Pado baptists I love you, yes. <laughs> but we're credo baptists And when I say 88, I mean 88 people professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ publicly last yep. year in our church. Yep. That's a wonderful thing. That's, that's worth it. To me, that's worth it. Mm-hmm. I was meeting with a former uh, public official yesterday and uh, an elderly gentleman who who was saved just in the last six months, who says, and I now have a personal relationship with Jesus mm-hmm. because of all that's going on in our world. He's come to faith in Jesus Christ. Like, that's worth it. Yeah. It makes it worth it. More people are being vocal. 
less people are being passive. There's some people that I thought would be vocal that have been passive, and those some I thought would be passive and that have been vocal. There's been some, some surprises there. But overall, I've seen a lot of people that otherwise were pretty passive saying, yeah, I, I need to do a better job at speaking out against injustice across the board. All the injustices. You know, maybe they were passive in the past about abortion. Ah, eh, you know, it's a losing battle. I, you know, let someone else pick it, let someone else write letters and let someone else speak. But they're now speaking out against that because mm -hmm. they've suffered in their own way. Like, I, I need to be more aware. This is a corrupt world. That's been great. Many people have counted the costs. So suffering, you know, in the old days, three years ago, yeah. <laughs> people might have wondered, I wonder how I would fare if I was actually persecuted for my faith. Now they know. Mm-hmm. Now they know what it's like to show up at church week after week with police cruisers in the parking lot or on the street. Yep. Now they know what it's like to be arrested. Now they know what it's like to be fined. Now they know what it's like to do jail time. Now they know what it's like to have had their bank accounts frozen or their property vandalized or have been fired from work or have been pulled through a knothole backwards in the media. Now they know. Mm -hmm. Now they know what it's like to have had their family. Remember Jesus talked about whoever loves their mother, father, brother, sister more than me is not worthy of me. Mm -hmm. I wonder what that would be like. Now they know. They know. They've been tried, they've been tested, and they've been victorious. Mm -hmm. Now they know. It may not be to the same intensity as Christians in the first century being sewn up in animal sacks and thrown into a, a den of lions. Mm -hmm. May not be on that level, but they've been tested. They Someone's looked them in the eye and said, you will do what we tell you to do or you will no longer have a paycheck. And they've said, we will obey God rather than man. Mm -hmm. And that hurt. And they may not necessarily even have economically recovered from it, but now they know mm -hmm. that when push comes to shove, by the grace of God, they were able to persevere and endure. And that, that gift is a gift that I wouldn't trade for anything. Because when further suffering comes, you know what you're made of. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And that, that would have been impossible for many Christians to know about themselves if they hadn't experienced what they've experienced over the past several years. We have people that have fairly large businesses that have put their businesses on the line and their reputations on the line by taking a stance. We have some Christian people that were in elected office that lost the last municipal, provincial, or federal election because of their stance. Mm -hmm. And those are the kind of people we know are virtuous, are principled people. So that's a beautiful thing. And then I also wanted to talk about relationships. You and I have talked about this a little bit. We are uh, relational beings. It's not a sin deficit in our lives to value relationships. Adam had a deficit in his life prior to sin entering into the world before God created Eve, who was created on the same day. So it wasn't even very long, maybe a few hours, and he, he was expressing some loneliness. Mm -hmm. It's not good, God says, that man should be alone. So there's nothing sinful about desiring relationships. There's nothing sinful about wanting to marry. There's nothing sinful about wanting a good friend. 
But the reality is, is that relationships can become a little bit of an idol. It can become a little bit of a, a blind to block us from really staring into the face of the one that truly satisfies mm. God. So one of the benefits that have come out of this is while we want to continue to value relationships, maybe some are learning not to idolize them, not to rely upon them as you know, their sole source of, of hope and strength and encouragement. Does God use human agents to bless us and minister to us? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, we have God, and God is the only constant mm-hmm. in, our, in our lives as Christians, and we really need to be reminded of that. I was talking to uh, a good friend, uh, pastors of church in Europe this week, and uh, he started the church uh, around the time that the pandemic, maybe just before or just after, they've been going for two or three years now. They said, you know, you might be used to this, but I'm, I'm kind of bummed out. I just lost my first two congregants. Mm. It wasn't a bad thing. They just, they moved for jobs. But he says, you know, I don't know. It just kind of put me into a bit of a funk. Like I lost my first two congregants. And, you know, I, I heard him out. And he says, and I'm sure you've lost many. And I said, actually, without a word of a lie, my estimate, I'm talking about men, women, and children. My estimate is that in over 20 years pastoring this church, there's been somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 people that have come, identified with our church, and then left. That that might solicit some gasps from those that are listening. But literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in my two-plus decades in this church have come. And, I'm not talking about visitors. I'm talking about people that have come regularly attended or become members. And I'm talking about their children as well mm-hmm. and who are no longer here. Yep. A very small percentage died. I've, I've, I've probably done, man, less than 10 funerals um, for people actually from our church in 20 years. I've done other funerals for family members and whatnot. But because we're a, a younger church, we do have lots of seniors as well, but I just haven't done a lot of funerals mm-hmm. um, in my, my time here. And... The time will come as the church ages, but that's that's our story. So, I am, I am, uh, I love people. I'm just testifying here, okay? Mm-hmm. So, so I love yep. people, and when people leave, you know, they they can leave in a bad way, and you're kind of angry. They can leave in a really good way, but they're called to a, another ministry, another country, another province. Their job takes them elsewhere. Family duties. There's just sort of that. Oh man, that's that doesn't feel good. Like I'm, I miss them. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a certain pain there, and because I've had to go through this so many times in my life, I've had people say like, "How do you, how do you continue to love people without becoming numb to the pain of loss?" And it seems to me that that's that's the question that's on a lot of people's minds. Yeah, one hundred percent. It is in ministry, and I want to hear the answer to that question. Um, in ministry, in and any of those things, there's a temptation to just pull back and invest less because you're like, they're going to go. Right. So, Yeah, it's it's really weird because, um, you know, if you switch jobs and, you know, you're used to pulling wires with another electrician and you get a better deal elsewhere, okay, I miss working with you, but whatever, it wasn't really like a close friend. 
you're on a on a factory line and you you take a different shift and you you know you you had good conversations with the person that moved next to you that that worked next to you but they're not like a, a good buddy but in the church it's painful because we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we genuinely love each other and we we self disclose and we're vulnerable and we have certain expectations and hopes and dreams for one another and we we invite people over to our homes and onto our elders councils and onto our staff and all these dynamics that take play. And, and when they leave, like you have to be a pretty callous person for that not to bother you at all. So I've thought a lot about this and um, you know, how, how, do I, how do I somehow love people, but also accept the reality of loss to the tune of well over a thousand, close to 2000 people in ministry. And what I'm about to share is not from me, okay? Because my my flesh, my natural response might be to say, "Forget this. I'm I'm not I'm not going to continue in ministry. I'm gonna, I'm going to go somewhere else," or to just get you know to get mad, or to, or to spend all my time chasing them down and begging them to come back, or to try to coercively keep them. But there's some principles I've learned over the years that have helped me to continue to minister and to be okay with loss, like to, not to allow it to cripple me. One would be to really make a conscientious effort to minister to people in the moment without an agenda attached. It doesn't mean that I don't have dreams for them and aspirations for them, but minister to them in the moment and don't like get rid of the God complex that says I can fix this person or I can make this person into my own image or I, I you know, I have a wonderful plan for this person's life. <laughs> yeah. That kind of a mindset. Just minister in the moment. Mm-hmm. Don't don't worry. The Bible talks in worry, like don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough challenges of its own. That same principle, minister to people in the moment without necessarily having this highfalutin agenda for where that relationship's gonna go or how useful they're gonna be in the life of the church. Allow relationships to just sort of like be deliberate, but allow them to, to to more casually and leisurely unfold over time. And if a person says, you know, hey, I'm moving away, oh, that 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 kind of hurts. You know, I, I'm going to miss you. I'm going to mourn your loss. But I didn't really have a big agenda here, and so that reduces my disappointment, and it also reduces my propensity to, in a sense, idolize that person. You know, hey, you were, you were part of a plan I had here for the church or for my own life or for my family or marriage or whatever it might be. Uh, secondly, I, I just don't think we should assume. Assumptions are what often kill people's dreams. Just don't assume that you'll pastor or be friends with the same people for life. Now, you should assume you'll be married to the same man or woman for life. Yes. <laughs> That's a different relationship. But we sometimes assume, hey, this person's here. I love them, I'm relying upon them, and I've given them leadership over almost every ministry in our church, which is unwise. People should work in silos. 90% of their time should be dedicated to one ministry and 10% reserved for other ministries. But you shouldn't be appointing people to the board, to leading this ministry, that ministry. That Everybody's expendable, even I'm expendable. Mm-hmm. And when you give people too much, not only are they not necessarily good at it, but it's it's far more painful when they're when they're no longer around. That's a little sidebar. Yep. But just don't assume that you'll pastor the same people for life. Assume that there'll be a season. And sometimes people move. People get married. People get angry. People fall away. Mm-hmm. Whatever it might be. They leave for good reasons and bad reasons. Third, Chris, I would say, I 
it's, it is good to dream the best for people. So one of the things I do, I have high expectations for people admittedly, but I, I honestly think that because I genuinely do love people, I look at someone I'm thinking, as I get to know them, I'm like, man, you got a lot of potential in this area. And so I want to push them toward that potential. Push, 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 push. Sometimes I push them too fast and too far beyond their capacity or capability and it backfires. Other times people feel like you're holding them back. And sometimes you do need to hold people back because you sense that maybe they're not in it for the right reason. That maybe they're, they, they, they want it too much. And if someone comes into our church and they're just desperate for leadership and they're just too good to be true, that's a yellow flag. It, mm-hmm. It's always a yellow flag. People that try too hard to, to impress and please generally have an agenda that it's impossible for you to ever fulfill. Mm-hmm. But you want to have desires for people. You want to, so I, I look at you and I'm like, you know, I could see this guy here, here, here in the years to come. And same with our children. But don't make the mistake of trying to control everyone's every move because people will surprise you. Some of the people that I had, frankly, to my own shame, um, very little hope (laughs) for have been some of the ones that have flourished the most and some of them that I near idolized. Now, this is like like a rising star for Christ, have have even abandoned the faith. Mm -hmm. So that's painful, but there needs to be a balance between having the best interest of the person at heart desiring more out of them and for them, but not controlling them. Obviously that means uh, you still need to discipline offenses. We always reserve the right to discipline members of our church. That's a biblical requirement. You're not even a real church if you don't practice church discipline. But at the end of the day, people are gonna do what people are gonna do. And some of them will exceed your expectations and some of them will come nowhere close. But don't, don't, make the mistake of assuming that this is where they're gonna be in X number of months or years. And also, don't be surprised that they're gonna accelerate beyond your expectations. And then there's a a principle, I heard someone else say this, I don't remember who, but I I love the, the imagery that good pastors, good leaders, good fathers, good mothers, good leaders in general, maintain a thick skin, but a soft heart. And what the idea there is that there has to be some boundaries you established in your life so you don't get walked all over. There has to be some, some toughness, some resolve. And if someone says something, don't take it personally right away. Just say they're lying, they're wrong. Don't, don't be so easily jerked around by people's attacks or by people's words, doesn't mean you need to tolerate them. I'm very comfortable if someone crosses the line and misbehaves saying, uh, yeah, you're not gonna talk to me that way, and the conversation's done. Mm-hmm. And until you smarten up, I'm not gonna permit that kind of disrespect. And I'm completely comfortable with that. Having a thick skin, not taking offenses personally, I would say, because I'm a pastor, there's plenty of times when people are offended by Aaron Rock, but nine times out of 10, they're offended by Pastor Aaron Rock. In other words, it's not really that they're offended by me. They just don't like what my office requires of me. Mm-hmm. They don't want church discipline. They don't want to be told to smarten up. But that's one of my duties as a pastor is to discipline and correct. They don't want that, or even with your kids, right? Yep. 
So there's there needs to be a, a toughness, a resolve, but what you can't do is you can't allow bitterness to settle in and you can't allow yourself to start hating people or despising people. There still needs to be a compassion directed toward them. We should be among the first to forgive an offense. We should be among the first to restore people to ministry. We should be among the first to open our arms and accept people back when they take a step in our direction. That doesn't mean we permit sin or overlook sin. So that principle there helps me in that I I love the people that have left. I, in all honesty, I, I, I must admit, I don't always like them. Okay, there's a difference between loving and liking. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to play word games, but there's a, a like is like, oh, I appreciate the personality, the the mannerisms, the the relationship. I don't always like that, mm-hmm. but you, we need we need to love people even that aren't necessarily the most likable. But at the same time, not be so easily rattled. Just entrust them to the Lord. We're not expendable, or we we are expendable, I should say. Yeah, yeah. and we we're not here forever. The world was here for a lot a long time before we were in. Unless the Lord Jesus returns, it's going to be here for a while yet. Um, so we need to be like okay mm-hmm. with the fact that some relationships will come and go. It doesn't mean we just sort of paste a fake smile on and grin and bear our way through it. But there needs to be that um, ability not to – there needs to be an ability to both nurture and cherish a relationship but not idolize it and need it mm-hmm. to be someone. Finally, Chris, final word would be if you're listening to this show and you've not yet put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to do that or there is no hope. If you are still lost in your sins and your trespasses and you have never repented of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, I I have no hopeful words to offer to you. You have reason to be depressed. Mm -hmm. You have reason to be traumatized and bummed out. Uh, The legal apparatus is not going to save you. The politicians are not going to save you. The local church pastor is not going to save you. Your freedom rallies aren't going to save you. Your crass flags aren't going to save you. The hope of the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. And each man and woman uh, needs to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for their salvation. And that involves repenting of your own sin and your own rebellion against God. And so that would be the message I would have for those that maybe are not yet saved, um, who are not yet born again. You need to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do, he allows you to have this whole new perspective on the current life events, which enables us to have joy in our suffering, to flourish in a faithless culture, and to cherish God's gifts, even when the world may have taken things from us by unjust means. Beauty. That's where it all goes back to. Um, It's all found in Christ. So thank you, Aaron, for reminding us of that. Thank you to our listeners today for taking the time to just engage with these issues, thinking through them. We know many of you are at different points in your walk uh, and have different struggles. Hopefully this has been an encouragement to you and that you can continue to pray and look to the Lord for strength. Just a reminder that you can find this podcast on Pastor Aaron's blog, pursuitofglory.org as well as over on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Networks app. Uh, Those are two great places to access it and from which to also share it and spread it out on social media and uh, 
use it as an opportunity to, to share the hope of Christ ultimately. We hope you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.